want to invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 1 today. Mark chapter 1, Mark's gospel. Chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing our summer series today, looking at some of the issues that are very um, prevalent in our culture today. And uh, we've been walking through several of these and seeing what the Word of God has to say about them. And today we're going to be looking at the issue of sexuality and what the Bible has to say about that. And specifically, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, lesbianism, and same-sex attraction. So if you've got kids in here and you want to get them up to kids' ministry, uh, now's your time uh, to do that, parents, just giving you... A little heads up today. Now tonight, I want to invite you out tonight uh, at 6 p.m. We're going to have church tonight, and we're really going to have a wonderful time together. And we're going to have part two of this message tonight. There's just way too much uh, to cover in the time we have this morning. And so tonight, we're going to cover part two. And it will be kid-friendly tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that we, we know what we're talking about, but that they don't know what we're talking about. Because uh, it is a family service, so I invite you families to bring your kids out tonight and uh, come and worship the Lord and be in His presence tonight at 6. We're going to have a wonderful time. And, um, you know, last month is the month of June, and it's the month that the world has declared is Pride Month, which is a whole month dedicated to the celebration of homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as I was passing through one of the stores uh, last month, I came across a, a whole section of the store devoted to the celebration of pride. And I saw this uh, baseball cap, and on the baseball cap it says, love is love. And tonight's message, I'm going to tell you why that statement is not true. We're going to be looking at tonight the issue of love and what is love. And unfortunately, even many within the church have an ill-informed or suboptimal, non-biblical uh, definition of love. And we as a church, unfortunately, often take our definition of what love is, not from the Word of God, but from the culture itself. And so our whole understanding on this issue is morphed and skewed and bent and... and um, headed in the wrong direction and trajectory. So tonight we're going to be looking at this issue of love. What is love and why this statement of love is love and what they're saying on this baseball cap and uh, all the t-shirts and the paraphernalia, why it is not true but in fact a lie. And so as we address this tonight, again, it will be family friendly and kid appropriate and your kids will enjoy it and be blessed for being here tonight. Amen. So... Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, that's where I want to start today, and let's just read through this passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start digging into the word this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, but the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. This is the word of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts today. Lord, help us to see clearly your design, to see clearly your purpose, to see clearly uh, your uh, blessing, Lord, that you have pronounced upon humanity if we will only follow you if we will only live under your rule and reign. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to reconcile us, to lay down his life, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, not just our example, our savior. Help us, Lord, to have the faith to believe that, to receive that, to walk in that, to submit to you as our Savior and our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now let's flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And while you're finding that, I mentioned what we would be talking about today, sexuality, same-sex attraction, homosexuality. And of course, in our culture today, there's lots of different ideas and opinions, actually more now than ever. But the issue is, what does God say about this? What does God think? This is the issue for us as Christians. Christians, those who follow Christ. What does God say? What does God think? Because we follow Christ, amen. We don't follow the culture so it's not so important to us what the culture thinks. What is should be important to us of paramount importance, of the highest importance, is what God thinks and what God says. Because Christ reigns today over the culture. Jesus is Lord. And so I want to lay a little bit of a foundation for us 
as we dig into this issue this morning. And as we saw in Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus comes and he, he follows after someone who had prepared the way for him, John the Baptist. John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for Christ had been foretold. It was quoted in the prophet Isaiah. And John the Baptist had come preparing the way for Christ and he was preaching a message of repentance of sin. And it says that all Judea and all Jerusalem went out to hear this message and that they were being baptized in the Jordan River. They were being washed uh, uh, symbolically of their sins. It was like they were being born again through this process. Baptism in those days was reserved not for Jews, but for Gentiles who were converting to the faith. But here, John the Baptist, preaching to Jews, says, you need to be converted. You are headed in the wrong direction. You need to repent of your sins. And there was this great revival that broke out as the whole countryside was going to hear this wild prophet out in the wilderness. He wasn't, he wasn't part of the religious establishment. He, he wasn't part of, of the accepted tradition of, of, of what was happening in the culture. He was outside the city. He was outside the culture. He was a lone voice crying out in the wilderness. He, he didn't look like the, the, the other religious leaders of his day. He, he didn't wear the, the vestments, the garments. He, he was clothed in camel's hair. Wore a leather belt. He didn't share in the same diet. He ate locusts and wild honey. One day I'm going to try that. I haven't tried that yet, but one day. <laughs> People were asking, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And he says, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. That's how high the Messiah is. And when Jesus comes on the scene, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had prepared the way so that when Jesus came on the scene, there was a, a crowd of witnesses there for his baptism, the heavens being split open, God the Father declaring from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Jesus goes off into the wilderness himself, being tempted by the devil, not giving in to sin, but overcoming sin, not following after the, the lies of the enemy, but rebuking the lies with the word of God. And then Jesus comes on the scene after 40 days of fasting and 40 days in the wilderness, and, and he comes, and what message does Jesus preach? What is the message, Jesus' first message on the scene? Oh, let me tell you how wonderful you are. Let me tell you how special you are. Let me tell you how much God loves you. Oh, let me tell you how God has a wonderful purpose and plan for your life. Oh, let me tell you how, how you can use your faith to become wealthy. Let me tell you how God just wants to pour out wealth and riches upon you. No, what does Jesus say? Repent. The time is now. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent. And believe in the gospel. You see, this message of repentance isn't a new message. In fact, it is the message of the Bible. 
All of the prophets proclaimed this message all throughout the Old Covenant, all throughout the Old Testament. The message of the prophets was one of repentance. John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching a message of repentance. Jesus Christ comes on the scene and his message is likewise the same. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. God's kingdom is at hand. What does the word repent mean? The word repentance is a Greek word, metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. A change of mind. It means that everything you are thinking is wrong. And you you need a new way of thinking. You need a new way of seeing. You need a new way of living. The word repentance means a 180. It means you, you are headed in the exact opposite direction. God's kingdom is at hand and you must turn back to God. Turning from sin, turning from hell, turning from death and turning back to following God. Now what is shocking is not this message of repentance, though for our modern ears that is shocking. What's truly shocking is the people that they're preaching to. They're preaching to God's people. They're preaching to the Jews, God's God's covenant people, the people of God. And what he is telling them is, though you think you are following God, you are not. You are not. And you must turn back to God. This is a shocking message. Shocking in their day and certainly shocking in our day. But this is the message of the Bible. If you open the Bible, you should be preaching repentance. If you're preaching to people, if you're preaching to cows or goats somewhere, you know, I don't know. Maybe you're like David the shepherd out there in the fields, you know. Maybe that's a good place to practice. But if you're preaching to people, you should be preaching repentance. Our nation needs to repent. We are under the judgment of God. Our nation is being judged by God right now. Right now. We are under the active judgment of God for our many wicked sins against him. And unless our nation repents, turns back to God, our nation will be swept away under the judgment of God. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is being established in the world. And those who will not come under his rule and reign will be swept away in his judgment. That is what Jesus is preaching. So we need to turn back to God. Well, what have we turned away from? And that's why I want to come to Genesis. To to show us what, what God's plan and purpose was. What God's intention was so that we can know what we need to turn back to and what we have turned away from. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. We've established that. We've talked about that. We've spent a whole sermon a few weeks ago on on the fact that God is the creator. We didn't come from nothing. We came from someone. That someone is God. Amen. God spoke the worlds into existence. God designed the universe to function a certain way. 
The idea that, that the universe is uncaused, that the universe had no designer is insanity. It's an insane idea. As intricate as our world is, as intricate as the universe is, as intricate as the human body is, the mind, the eye, the conscience, the, the, the function of, of life, the, the, the insanity that all of this came from nothing is, is it, it makes no sense whatsoever. The Bible starts with the idea, the declaration that God is the creator and that God then creates humanity. And we see that in Genesis 1 verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God is the creator of everyone and everything. God is the designer of humanity. Humanity was created in the image of God. That means that we're to shine forth the glory of God. That humanity is to be like a mirror that reflects the glory of God, the light of God, the nature, the character of God out to the world, out to the universe, out to his creation. That humanity is to rule with dominion over the creation that God made under God's rule and authority. Created in the image of God. We were created, as the Westminster Confession says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were created. God formed you in your mother's womb. God gave you the, the personality that you have, the likes, the dislikes. God, God formed you. Gave you the gifts, the talents, the abilities that you have. God put you into the family in which you were born and God decided of when you would be born and where you would be, would be born. God is the designer. God is the creator. You were created by God to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God pronounces this blessing upon humanity. God's desire for humanity, for his creation, is that we would fill the earth with the glory of God. We bear the image of God. We are to shine forth the glory of God. And God's desire was to put his glory on display and that the earth would be filled of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That humanity would go out and spread over all the earth cultivating the land, building cities, building culture, producing art that brings glory and praise to our creator God, filled with worshipers. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone served God? What the world would be like if everyone lived their lives for the glory of God? How amazing would it be but that's not the world that we live in, is it? Far from it. God pronounces a blessing on humanity as they go out. He says, he blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
So the vehicle God created to accomplish this, his glory filling the earth was the family. The family. We see male and female right here. This is not the product of evolution. It's, it's insanity because if evolution were true, the, the, odds, the, the odds that a, a male and a female would evolve at the exact same time, in the exact same place, so that their parts would come together to be able to reproduce humanity. It's beyond comprehension. It defies science, defies biology, the odds. No, God created man and God created woman. He designed them to function together to produce offspring, to produce image bearers of God, to make families. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 as it zeroes in even closer, zooms in on the creation of the family, on the creation of of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We see earlier in Genesis 2 that that God formed Adam, created Adam first. And then he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And in verse, uh, down into verse 20, it says, there was not a helper found fit for Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought him, brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God's plan and purpose for humanity filling the earth with the glory of God is family. Is family. And family, according to God's definition, starts with a marriage. It starts with a marriage between a man born as a man and a woman born as a woman who come together in holy matrimony who come together as one flesh, leaving their old family, leaving father and mother, new family being formed, one flesh, coming together in in intimacy, coming together in in a union, that that they're not the same, they're, they're different. There wasn't a helper fit for Adam, and so God made one that fit him. And when they come together, they form this one flesh union that results in what? Image bearers of God. The glory of God filling the earth. The earth today is not overpopulated. We need more people on planet earth today. There's this demonic, satanic, Marxist, communist, socialist idea that there's too many people on planet Earth. And we need to reduce the population of of people on on the Earth. Well, God says to fill the Earth with humanity. So so any idea that's saying we need less people, 
It's demonic. It's satanic. I don't know if you know this, Karl Marx in his Communist Manifesto called for the abolition of the family. The abolition of the family. And every ideology that has sprung from Marxism, communism, socialism, feminism, calls for the destruction of the family. That when offspring are born, they, they are not the responsibility of the father and mother, but rather they're the property of the state. To shift the, the rearing of children, the education of children, bringing them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to shift that from the parents and to shift that responsibility to the state, to the government. And to reduce the number of human beings on planet Earth. What I'm trying to show you in this summer series is that all of these things that we are talking about share the same seed. They're, they're all the, the product of the same idea. They, they all come from the same place. And so here we see that the family is formed. Husband and wife, man and woman. And when man and woman come together, image bearers of God are birthed into the world and a family begins. And marriage, here we see, is a, is a covenant that is instituted by God. Instituted by God. And, and Jesus, if you want to flip over with me quickly to Matthew 19, keep your place in Genesis because we're coming back there. But Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirms this covenant. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So, so Jesus affirms the created order, God's design in creation of male and female. Listen, there's not 400 genders. There's two, male and female. Gender is tied to biological sex. The idea that you can separate those two is insanity. If you are a man today, you're a man because God made you a man, and you will always be a man. If you're a woman today, you're a woman because God made you a woman, and you will always be a woman. I don't care what body parts you cut off or add or what hormones you add to your body. It doesn't change who you are, who God made you to be. We'll deal with that next week. Let's try and stay focused. Okay, so... Male and female, God made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, that's marriage, and the two shall become one, fle one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together or what therefore God has created, let not man separate. Jesus, our Savior, when questioned on the issue of marriage, he starts with, have you not read? Don't you know your Bible? Haven't you read like the first few pages? 
God created humanity male and female. And sexuality is to be expressed only within the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife. This is the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. Marriage is a covenant instituted by God, affirmed by the Lord Jesus, blessed by the Apostle Paul. From Genesis to Revelation, marriage is between a man and a woman. In fact, the Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. The, the end of all humanity culminates in what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. As Jesus comes back for his church, as the bridegroom comes back for his bride, and they are united, and we will be united together forever with Christ in this marriage celebration. That earthly marriage, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we don't have time to go there, earthly marriage was put in place by God to foreshadow the church and Christ. And so an attack on marriage is an attack on the church and on Christ. Now, we, I want you to notice here, what, what is it? We were in Genesis chapter 2. Let's flip back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. I want you to notice, what is it that comes after Genesis 2? Genesis 3, obviously. Genesis, that wasn't a trick question. So into this blessing, into this pronouncement of, of blessing and husband and wife coming together as one flesh... What God has made, he declares is good and even declares it is very good. What we need to know as, as people is that everything God does, he does out of love. Because the Bible says that God is love. And so whatever is in his word is motivated out of his love for us. God is also good, and so everything God does and everything he designs is good and very good. And so male and female is good. It's good. If you're a female, you should lean into the female characteristics. If you're a male, you should lean into your masculine characteristics. I know that there's this whole toxic masculinity thing Listen, that's a lie. There's evil, there's evil, there's, it's just good behavior and sinful behavior. There's no toxic behavior. It's either good as God designed it and blessed it, or it's sinful. Now, can we use our, our natures to sin against God? Of course we can. But can we also use them to glorify God? Yes, we can. And so men are being told today that if they show any ambition, if they show any drive, if they show any desire to, to, to go out and to, to conquer the world and, and to make things better and to exercise dominion, that's immediately slapped down as toxic. Now, can you use those things in a sinful way? Well, certainly you can. But can you use those ways to exercise God's blessing? Absolutely you can. To provide for your family, to protect your family, to stand as a, as a wall, as a barrier between the world and your family, yes! Amen. To be strong, 
God called men to be strong for their families. But the world wants to make men weak. Why? So their family can be attacked. So there's, not, there's no such thing as toxic masculinity. There's godly masculinity and there's sinful masculinity. Male and female is good. The distinctions are good. And then multiplying, as he says, sex, as God designed it, is also very good. I expected an amen there, but anyway. <laughs> so God's blessing is on the family. And the family becomes God's conduit of blessing in the earth. The family is God's conduit of blessing on the earth, which is why the family is under attack. And so Genesis 3, Satan shows up with another offer. Satan shows up with another plan. Satan shows up with a different way. With an alternate way to live. Satan is the enemy of God. But it also tells us here that he is subtle. That he is subtle, crafty, sneaky. That he comes disguised as an angel of light. In Isaiah chapter 14, it, it talks about the fall of Satan. Satan wasn't created evil. In fact, he was created good. He was created as the, one of the archangels of heaven. One of the most beautiful beings, but he became filled with pride Pride, which the Bible says is a sin. Hello? Which is, many theologians believe pride is the original sin. Satan's heart was filled with pride, and it tells us about his pride in Isaiah chapter 14. We won't take time to go there, but this is what it says. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to hell, to the far reaches of the pit. Satan led an insurrection against God. One third of the angels joined him in this rebellion against God. And God flicked his finger and kicked them out of heaven. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. But Satan said, I will be God. I will overthrow God. I will take God off of his throne and I will be seated on that throne. That is the ideology of Satan. It's the ideology of self. And when Satan comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, can you guess what comes out? Satan comes to Eve, Genesis 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
So God had given Adam his word. He had told him, this is how you to live in the world that I have made. Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of the garden that I've given you. Take care of Eve, your wife. Teach her my ways. Teach her my commandments. Teach her how to live in the world. Adam had instructed Eve in this. He had taught her that we can eat of all the trees, but we can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because if we do, we will die, as God said. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God is a liar. That's what he's saying there. God is a liar. God's word is not true. Don't believe God's word. Okay, so what do I substitute? If I'm not going to believe God's word, I'm not going to live under his rule and reign. What, 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 how do I live? What, what do I follow? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What did Satan say before he was thrown down? I will be like the Most High. I will make myself like God and sit on the throne. And he comes to Eve and he says, if you eat of it, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. That you don't have to follow God's standard of righteousness. You don't have to follow God's standard of good and evil. You don't have to live under God's rule and God's reign. You don't have to live under his lordship and his kingship. No, you be the Lord of your own life. You be the king of your own life. You follow your own path. You follow your heart. You be like God. We know how it goes, that she ate of the fruit. She gave some to Adam. He ate as well. And that sin entered the world and death through sin. And the world has been a catastrophe ever since. The ideology of self is what Satan tempted Eve with. The self ideology, you will be like God. This ideology of self, this sin, it comes into the world through disobedience. Not living under God's rule and reign, but following what we want to do ourselves. And now deceived by Satan, all of humanity is born in sin... And deceived by Satan, we believe that we can live our life, our way in God's world. We think we can live our way in the world that God made and still live under God's blessing. But that's not how it works in the world that God made. You see, we believe that we are like God. We believe that we are autonomous, that we are separate from God. But we are not. We are God's creatures in God's world. Created to live for God's glory. But when we look at the vast numbers of humanity, the vast sea of humanity today, what we see is not a humanity living for the glory of Christ, but what we see is a humanity living for their own glory. The ideology of self. And we, the Bible declares, have all rebelled against God. We have all gone our own way. We have all decided at one point or another to not live under God's law. We've all broken God's commandments. 
There's not a one of us in here who hasn't fallen short of the glory of God. Not a one of us in here who has not sinned. We are born in sin and we choose sin. And the issue is truly at the heart of the matter, is it a God-centered life that we are living or a self-centered life? God-centered or self-centered? Living for the glory of God or living for the glory of self? Living for the pleasure of God or living for the pleasure of self? We've looked at Romans chapter 1 uh, the last couple of weeks where it talks about humanity living for themselves, worship themselves, the creature, instead of the creator. This creature worship, it is self-centeredness. It is the worship of the self. And this is the culture that we live in today. The culture we live in today, the religion of today, the religion of the culture, and I know it's called secular, but don't be fooled into believing that it is. It is highly religious. And it is the religion of the self. People worship themselves. My happiness and comfort is the highest value and the greatest good. That is how people live today. And they live to it with religious devotion. But remember, you were created what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The religion of our day says, no, no, no. You will be like God. Don't live for God's glory, live for your own glory. Don't follow God's law, follow your own heart. Don't live under his rule and reign. You sit on the throne. It is self, 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 self. The worship of the self. So we have things like self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-promotion, self-care. It's a huge topic today, self-care. Taking care of yourself. Self-love, self-help, self-indulgence, self-improvement, self-esteem, self-worth. And as some of the kids like to say, treat yourself. Right? <laughs> it's, it's self, 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 self. And it's the ideology of Satan. It's the philosophy of demons. Obsession with the self is satanic. And unfortunately, this religion has even infiltrated the church of Christ. I saw a pastor last week giving a message on the importance of investing in others, the kingdom of God, World missions? No, the importance of investing in yourself. And so when we start to talk about this issue of sexuality and God's design for sexuality, it strikes to the absolute core of what we are indoctrinated with in our world and in our culture, it strikes at the absolute core of our self. What we want. 
Now, the Bible could, could not be more clear. It is extremely consistent when it talks about sexuality. There's no deviation whatsoever in the 66 books of the Bible. Though they were written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents over a span of 1,500 years in multiple different languages and nations, you think about how much culture changes in five years, 10 years. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, most of whom never knew themselves, knew each other, or met each other. Yet there is one consistent message from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible doesn't deviate on this fact one square inch that sexual expression outside of marriage as defined by God is sin. Every sexual expression outside of marriage as defined by God, the Bible declares is against God's design, is against God's law. It is sin. This includes, but is not limited to, polygamy, incest, rape, fornication, that's, that's uh, sex before marriage, adultery, that's sex with someone who's not your spouse, pornography, that's viewing images of, of people having sex or nudity, bestiality, that's sex with animals, and also homosexuality, lesbianism, and pedophilia. The Bible declares that all of these unequivocally are sinful. They're outside of God's good and perfect design. They're broken perversions of God's good gift to humanity. And they're following after the ideology of self. Not submitting to God's word, but submitting to my basest and carnal desires. It's seeking satisfaction outside of what God has designed. So there are those, there are some who say that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, so that makes it okay today. Jesus never specifically addressed the issue. And so because Jesus, they say, didn't address it, therefore, therefore, it's acceptable for the Christian today, who we follow Christ and Christ never said anything, therefore, uh, it's okay, homosexuality is okay, same-sex relationships and marriage are okay in the church because... Jesus never said anything about it. And while it is true that, Je that we don't have any record of Jesus specifically addressing this issue, I've already showed you in Matthew 19 where Jesus talked about what marriage was, that Jesus affirmed the creative design for marriage, which means uh, by uh, definition that he is accepting the Bible's teaching on sex inside of marriage, but not outside of marriage. But to address this issue, I, I just want to read to you a passage of Scripture from the Lord Jesus, from Matthew. 
We're not going to take time to go there, but it says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. He's saying not an apostrophe or a period will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says that not, not, not even the punctuation of the law will be, will be completed, will, will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Well, have heaven and earth passed away? No, no so the law of God is still in effect. The, the law of God, the moral law of God still stands today. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to, to set it into full force, to put it into full uh, expression. And so if you go with me, if you have time today, if, if, if you want to flip over there quickly, Leviticus, what does the law of God say? Jesus affirms the law. Jesus says, have you not read in the law? Leviticus chapter 18, the law. What does the law of God say about this? Leviticus 18. For the sake of time, we're going to look at one verse. Leviticus 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So, same sex. Sex is an abomination to God. This is the law of God that Jesus says will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. If you go over just a few more pages, Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination and shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This is the law of God. Same sex, sex, homosexuality, lesbianism, it is against God's law, which Jesus said. Not even the punctuation is going to pass away, much less the commandments until heaven and earth pass away. So the, 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 the message that Jesus didn't address this is not true because Jesus says the whole law of God is in effect today. That the law of God, he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill or establish it. So while God's word clearly, emphatically, and repeatedly declares that sex is a gift to be shared between a man and a woman in monogamous holy matrimony, Instead, as a culture, we have decided to use our bodies not to bring glory to God, but to bring pleasure to ourselves. You see, we were designed to bring glory to God, but instead we have chosen the way of self, the religion of self, and we act on that instead of God's word. In fact, our culture has gone so far as to try to redefine marriage in the Supreme Court decision of 2015, Obergefell, the Supreme Court declared 
Men and men can become married and have marriages. Women and women can marry and, and enter into matrimony together. So in our culture, no longer marriage is, is between a man and a woman. That We've done away with that. Instead, now man and man can marry. Woman and woman can marry. And just so you know, by God's definition, the, the author and the giver of life, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who made me and you, the one who made humanity, by God's definition, this is not a marriage. A woman and a woman, I don't care what par- piece of paper they have, they are not married. Not in the eyes of God, and it shouldn't be in the eyes of the church. Same goes for men. This is not God's design. Man and man is not a marriage. It is a mirage, an illusion. It is deception. So we as Christians should never even use the term gay marriage. There is no such thing. There's gay mirage, but there is no gay marriage. Now, what I find puzzling, confusing, shocking, heartbreaking is that though God's word is crystal clear, and, and these are not the only passages, if I, I could take you to passage after passage after passage after passage, but God's word is so abundantly clear, but even though it is clear, what I find puzzling is that even within the church, homosexuality is being embraced. It's, it's not hard to find a church that has a rainbow flag fly, flying out in front of it. It's not very difficult to find a, a pastor or a priest who will marry you in a same-sex mirage. In fact, you, you don't even have... You won't even make it up Callahan Road before stopping at a church that will marry you. That's how prevalent it is in our culture today. And while I'm not surprised that it's that way in the world, the world has no basis for truth because they've rejected God, they've rejected their creator, they've rejected Jesus Christ. I'm not surprised that it is that way in the world. I am surprised that it is becoming more and more that way within the church. In 2015, right before the Supreme Court decision, where nine justices thought they could redefine what God had said in his word, I received a phone call from one of our local news stations who said they wanted to interview me about what the Bible says about same-sex marriage. So I said, okay, sure. And so Kins 5 came and interviewed me in my office about same-sex marriage. And when I asked them, why are you interviewing me? They said, well, you were the only church we could find in San Antonio that had published on your website what you believed about marriage. We were the, it, that's according to Kins 5. I found that shocking. I found that shocking. 
But I went and I looked, and, and he was right. I don't know if it is still that way. But he said, we, we, could, we couldn't find any other church that had it published what they believed about marriage and human sexuality. I said, well, I mean, that's what we believe. We, it's in the Bible. We just put it on our website. That video is on YouTube. You can go and watch it. What, what is shocking to me is, number one, that there are churches that affirm what the Bible clearly defines as sin. And number two, that there are so many more churches that are silent on the issue. They won't even they won't talk about it, they won't teach about it, they won't preach about it, they won't even publish it on their website. And that to me is is not a good thing. If you want to, if you won't tell someone the truth, I mean the whole again, the whole message of the Bible is one of repentance. And Heather, me and Heather have been just every time we see a, a, a big name in Christianity or some Christian quote-unquote celebrity come out and affirm homosexuality, you know, we always talk about it and we're just so puzzled. How can this be? And I've been pondering on this. I've been meditating on it for a long time. But what I've found, what I've discovered, I think I've found out why this is. And it's because it has to do with the worship of the self. It has to do with the worship of the self. Because there are many within the church who profess that Jesus is Lord and that Christ is King, yet they do not live their lives that way. There are many within the church who call themselves Christians, but they still are part of the religion of the self. They still worship themselves. They still live for their own pleasure, their own glory, and not Christ. It's what I call the great disconnect, this, this great separation between Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. They themselves are still their Lord. Those who come out and support same-sex union, same-sex marriage within the church, Jesus is not their Lord. They are their Lord. They are worshiping themselves. And so there are many within the church today who live a self-centered life, not a God-centered life, who are more concerned about their own personal happiness than their own holiness. And again, this is the philosophy of the world, and it is antichrist, and it is demonic. And so you may have grown up in the church. You may have been at church your whole life, and you may even affirm some facts about Christ. You may believe that he lived a life without sin, and that he died, and that he rose again, and that he's ascended to the right hand of God. You say, you hear the gospel, and you say, yes, I believe it. Jesus is my Savior. He died for my sins. And so you can affirm some facts about Christ, but until you surrender your life to him as your Lord, totally, completely, and fully, until you do that, you're just playing religious games. 
until you do that, you are part of that great crowd that on that last day will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus, I went to church. Jesus, I raised my hand. Jesus, I said the prayer in VBS. You are my savior. He says, I'm not your Lord. Depart from me. I never knew you. You cannot have Jesus as savior without having him as Lord. These two things cannot be separated. If Jesus is who he said he was, did what the Bible says he did, then the only logical, the only response that is acceptable is to fall on our face in full, complete, humble devotion unto him as our Lord. That's it. And until you do that, surrendering every aspect of your life to him, you do not love God. You love yourself. And you love your sin. Because if you will not lay it at the foot of the cross, you love your sin more than you love the Savior. And so if you will not repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you will not be forgiven of your sin. You will not be saved of your sin unless you repent and believe the gospel. These are not my words. This is Jesus's sermon. Mark chapter one. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There is no salvation without the repentance of sin. There is no salvation without turning to Christ, turning from sin, forsaking all sin. You cannot love sin and the things of the world and also love God. First John says, love not the world or the things of the world. We are called to love God and to forsake sin. And this is why sexual behavior, sinful sexual behavior, is embraced within the church. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about adultery. I'm talking about fornication, sex outside of marriage. I'm talking about pornography. It's embraced within the church. Why? Because the church, the religion of self has infiltrated the church. Loving yourself as the highest good and priority until you truly repent of yourself and your self-love and your self-worship you will never see the kingdom of God Jesus said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily it's a daily death that we die the death to self and follow Christ for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are the words of Christ. And the reason why this sexual sin has infiltrated the church and we accept 
adultery and we accept fornication and we accept homosexuality is because we worship ourselves. Therefore, we are willing to affirm others who do the same. We see in others the same idolatry that we see in ourselves. We see in others, well, they just want to be happy and that's what I want too. And isn't that why Jesus died to make me happy? So I'll just affirm anybody and whatever makes them happy because that's what I want too. That's my ultimate end and goal. Christ didn't die to make you happy. Christ died to make you holy. Amen. And so many within the church not only share the same idolatry, the worship of self, but they also share the same definition of love which we'll look at tonight. One last passage. I know this is long. There's a lot of ground to cover. One last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to make a pastoral appeal. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think I said 16. 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul here addresses this very straight on and he says that to live in persistent sin is, is evidence of the fact that you are not in a right relationship with God. To, to pursue these things, it, it means that you are not born again. It means that you are not filled with the Spirit. It, it means that if you are living this kind of lifestyle without repentance from sin, without fighting and warring against it in yourself... You are not filled with the Spirit of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, do not be deceived. There are people who, who think that this is going to be okay. You can live any old way you want and you'll be saved and it's all fine. It's all grace. Don't worry about it. Paul says, do not be deceived by such voices. You will not inherit. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul here does not address 
homosexual Christians and affirm them in their homosexuality. No, he addresses Christians who used to be homosexual. He doesn't address sin, uh, Christians who are adulterers. He doesn't address Christians who are sinning sexually. No, he addresses Christians who used to be adulterers. Christians who used to sin sexually. But something has happened to them. Something has happened. He says, but such were some of you. You were that way, past tense. But you were washed. Washed in the blood of Christ. Cleansed of sin. You were, you were sanctified, set apart as holy as unto God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And you were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So those who, listen to me clear, clearly, those who promote the idea of homosexual Christians rob from them the true freedom that is available to them in Christ. There, there were people in the church in Corinth who used to belong to that lifestyle, who used to practice these things, but they were set free by Jesus Christ. And so, amen. Just as there are in our church people who have been set free. Is there hope for change? The world says you are born this way. There's nothing you can do about it. The gospel declares no. There is hope in the gospel. Absolutely there is hope for change. Why? Because homosexuality is a sin. And Jesus died and rose again to save sinners and set us free from sin. Amen. To break the bondage of sin. To break the enslavement through the blood of Christ and through the cross. To declare that homosexuality is not a sin is to leave them trapped in their sin and rob them from the grace of God. So any church or ministry that does that is, is not working for the good of people but for their death. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. I've seen God do this. I've seen him set people free of sexual sin and bondage. Completely free. Now living lives that bring glory to Christ. And now they are full of love. True love and life and peace and joy and all the things that the world promises but delivers the opposite. These are the things that Christ brings as gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Christ wants these for you as well, but they will not be found in some twisted sexual identity or experience. We must be set free of a self-centered life and truly live a God-centered life. We must repent, true repentance, with brokenness over our sin. 
which we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all put ourselves on the throne, but instead we must lay ourselves and our sin down at the altar. God's desire for humanity is that we would fill the earth with worshipers and bring him glory. And God has pronounced a blessing on anyone who will submit themselves to him and live under his rule and his lordship. And this is only possible in Jesus Christ. It's only possible through the cross. It's only possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The serpent offers a counterfeit and deception, but Jesus offers a life and life more abundantly. And he calls on us to repent, to change our minds, to change our thinking, to allow him and his word to renew our minds and our thought and our thinking, to believe the truth instead of the lie, to put God at the center instead of ourselves and what that will produce in our lives and in our family and in our world and in our community and in our nation is human flourishing. And right now, all we have is human misery because they are living for the self. And we have a choice in the matter. We have a choice. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I lay before you a choice, the path of blessing or the path of curse. Unfortunately, our world and our culture has chosen the second path. But what will it be for you? Will you choose the path of life? Will you choose the path of blessing? Will you choose the cross? Will you choose to lay yourself down so that you can truly find life, the life of Christ? Let us choose life. I invite you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, without your word, we would be in darkness. Without your word, we would be lost. Without your word, we would be broken and in bondage to sin. But Lord, your word shines forth even in the darkness. Lord, I pray that your word would pierce our hearts would cut us to the core. Lord, if there's any area in our lives, sexual or otherwise, where we are not living for you, but we are living for ourselves, Lord, that you would convict us and that we would be willing to lay it all on the altar, knowing, God, that what you have in your word is only for our good is only because you love us. Lord, we thank you for your love that is expressed in the sending of your son, Jesus, who died to take away our sin. I pray that as we take of communion today, that the realities of the cross, the realities of sin, the realities of holiness, the realities of your wrath against sin, the realities of our substitute, Christ, would become ever more vivid and ever more vibrant in our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our thoughts today to set us free from self so that we could live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.